Exodus chapter 20, we're going to be this morning, we'll read verses 1 to 13. Uh, we'll read the portion that we've already covered, and then we'll uh, land there on the one that we're going to hit this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me so you can follow along. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, Moses writes, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord your will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, And rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and mother. That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. So as we've been working our way through the Ten Commandments. uh, We come to the Sixth Commandment there in the text. It's a very short one. You shall not murder. But before we get to that commandment, I just want to remind you of... What we've been saying all along about these commandments is that they are not a stairway to ascend to God. They're not a way of earning God's acceptance, of earning God's approval, that if we can just check, put a check next to all those boxes down the page, then God would be obligated to accept us. But rather they are come after God's saving work in our life. In fact, God doesn't give the law to His people until He delivers them out of the land of Egypt. And there's a gospel pattern there we've said so far. That God delivers and then He teaches, He instructs, He commands. And so what you see from that pattern is this, is that it's not a stairway to get to God, but it's a pathway of freedom to enjoy what God's provided for us as He's rescued and redeemed us from Satan's sin and death. I'll say it to you this way this morning, the, the law or the Ten Commandments, they're not prison bars, but they are a parachute. Right, if you imagine two people going up into an airplane to go skydiving, Okay, in South Louisiana, where I'm from, we'd have called them Boudreaux and Thibodeau, but you don't know nothing about them, right? You don't know Boudreaux and Thibodeau, right? So we're going to call them Jimmy Ray and Jenny K. How about that? Does that work for you? So Jimmy Ray and Jenny K are going up into an airplane to go skydiving, and so they get strapped up with parachutes, and they're there once the plane reaches altitude, and they launch themselves out of the bay of the airplane to plummet down toward the face of the earth. Now, Jimmy Ray's been listening to some Leonard Skinner, right? So he's got a little free bird playing in his mind, right? He wants to be free as a bird, and nobody can change him, okay? And so as he falls, he realizes the parachute is a little bit restricting. So it's, got a, it's kind of bothering him in a few places, a little bit tight, maybe rubbing a little bit raw on his shoulder. So he thinks, man, I'm going to be free. I'm going to rip the parachute off, and I'm just going to be free as a bird. And yet, Jenny Kay, she's been listening to Chris Stapleton, and she realizes... Right, that falling always feels like flying until you hit the ground. So she keeps her parachute on. 
Now, at the end of this endeavor, what's going to happen is Jenny Kay is going to be looking for a new boyfriend because Jimmy Ray is going to be pancaked on the earth, right? Because he is shaken free of the restriction that was intended to protect him, that was intended to safeguard him, that was intended to be a refuge for him. And whenever you come to the Ten Commandments, that's what you, we should see them as, as God's protection for us. They allow us to flourish and experience freedom in life. They're not meant to be prison bars, but a parachute. Okay? Including this one, as we come to the Sixth Commandment, the commandment, you shall not murder. Now this morning, what I want us to do is see several things about this commandment. The first one is the meaning of the commandment the reason for the commandment, the scope or extent of the commandment, and how Jesus deepens and transforms it for us. So let's start with the meaning of the commandment. What does it mean? If you're taking notes, and if you got the little students, if you got the little handouts we gave you, whenever you came in the door, here's the first point. Murder, that's spoken of here in the text, is the taking of innocent human life. When the Bible says you shall not murder, it says you shall not take innocent human life. Some of your translations render this commandment, you shall not kill. Right? Perhaps murder may be a, a better translation because of the word that's used there in Hebrew is only used a few other places in the Old Testament, uh, whereas the word that's used for to kill shows up so many times throughout the Old Testament, hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament. But this is a unique word. Right? And so there's several things. Let me just say, first of all, there's several things that are not included in this idea of murder here in the Old Testament. The first one is this. Self-defense is not included in this. Let me tell you why. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 2, we find like, you got, you got the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and then you've got case studies of all these things and the rest of the law that God gives. And in Exodus 22, verse 2, here's what you find. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. In other words, self-defense. You have a right to defend your property. There in the Old Testament, Exodus 22, verse 2. So self-defense is not included in this command. While it would be, while it would be uh, heartbreaking for someone to die because they were breaking in to steal a gold watch uh, and threaten the life of someone else, is not included in this particular issue of murder. Second of all, and some of us might push back on this one, that's all right, but capital punishment is not included in this command either. In fact, in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, whenever Noah and his his sons come off of the boat, whenever they come off the ark and they come to start life again in this brave new world, God says to Noah and his descendants, He says this in Genesis 9, 5 and 6, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image." In other words, God sees man has has such dignity and worth and value and respect that whenever his life is taken, that the only reasonable response is for the life of the one who took it to be taken as well. Third, what's not included in this command is just war. Just war. Okay, so you see throughout the Bible, God sends His people in the battle, and in fact, the Bible says over and over again that He fights for them. He fights on their behalf. 
And you turn the pages into the New Testament in the Romans 13, and God even says that He's given the sword to the governing authorities, to the state, to exercise for the protection, the welfare, and the well-being of its citizens. So that they wield it rightly, and they wield it justly, and they wield it ethically, but they still wield the sword. The governing authorities still wield the sword. So self-defense, capital punishment, and just war are not included here in the Sixth Commandment. But what is included in the Sixth Commandment? You shall not murder. The taking of innocent human life. Let me give you four things that I think are included in this command. And many of them you see throughout the Scriptures. First, intentional premeditated murder. Intentional, I meant to do it. Premeditated, I thought about it beforehand. Murder, I took the life of an innocent human being. You see this in the story of Cain and Abel. As one brother offers a sacrifice that God finds to be accepting, the other one offers a sacrifice that God rejects, and the one that he rejects rises up and slays his other brother. He thought about it, he intended to do it, and he carried it out. Intentional premeditated murder. Second, of, second intentional unpremeditated murder, or what we might call in our judicial system, voluntary manslaughter. In other words... I meant to do it, but I didn't think about it beforehand. It just arose out of a crime of passion, we might call it. I was so furious, I was so angry, I was so filled with rage in the moment that I took the weapon and I, you know, in the parlor with the candlestick and I committed the murder. Okay? Voluntary manslaughter. Third, reckless homicide or involuntary manslaughter. In other words, I may not have intended to do it, but I, I brought someone's life who was innocent to an end. Okay? In fact, you find a, 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 an instance of this talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 19, in verses 4 and 5, where it says, If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, so there was no hatred, there was no animosity, there was no rage, there was no anger, but you unintentionally brought someone else's life to an end. And he says something like this, verse 5, As when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. In fact, this is in a part of the Old Testament where God is setting up what are known in the Old Testament as cities of refuge. So that if something like this happens, that there were places to, for these individuals to flee whenever it was involuntary manslaughter, reckless homicide, didn't mean to do it, but I brought someone's life to an end, that before their friends and family could rise up and take revenge, there were cities of refuge placed throughout the land where they could flee and find protection. Right? But the Old Testament law, I want you to notice this, made a distinction between accidental death and death motivated by hatred, motivated by anger, motivated by rage. But also fourth, negligent homicide. Negligent homicide. So that would be when my irresponsibility contributes to or causes the death of another individual. The Old Testament speaks of this as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, it says, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, so that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Now listen, you're like, why are you on the roof to begin with? Listen, in the ancient world, there were no, before the harnessing of Freon, and central air conditioning systems. Okay, there, were no, there was no electricity, no fans, no AC. And so in the evening, if you wanted to get cool, uh, you would walk up to the rooftop 
which was like the outdoor living space in their day, like the patio of their day. And you would go up upon the roof and you would feel the, you would just cool off up there as the evening breeze swept there across the rooftop. And, and the, in Deuteronomy 22, we're told that whenever you build a new house, you're to build a parapet. Now, what's a parapet? It's like a small, stubby wall, like a half wall around the rooftop so that no one could just accidentally fall off of the top of the roof and fall to their harm or their death. So they're giving commands about architecture here, about structural engineering and ingenuity. Like, build a half wall so that you do not incur the blood guilt. You don't contribute to the death of another individual by not providing boundaries or safety. It would be like putting up a gate around your pool if you've got infants in your home. Or having a pool alarm, right? When you open the door and nobody's supposed to be out there, it just starts singing at you. Okay? It would be that kind of, of, of a reality operational in the in the ancient world. Or you find this in Exodus 21, 28 and 29. It says, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned, but it has not been kept in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. In other words, it's the first time the ox gores somebody to death. I know you're like, man, this is so encouraging this morning. The first time an ox gores someone to death, right? You, you stone the ox and you, you burn it, right? You, you do away with it. You don't eat the body. You don't do anything with it. But if the ox has done it before and there's a pattern in the ox's life and you didn't do anything to address it and you don't keep it in, you don't keep it finished, you don't keep it gated and you let it out and it goes and does it again, it says then there's consequences to be paid by not only the ox, but also the owner. Okay, and so these, this is what's included in this. It's, it, it's this, this. This commandment is the prohibition of killing or causing death by my direct action or inaction of any innocent person. Okay, so negligent homicide, reckless homicide, involuntary manslaughter, voluntary manslaughter, or premeditated murder. This is the command that God gives. But why? Why is murder wrong? Okay, so if you took this definition and you went out into the streets of Rockwall County or the streets of Hunt County, the streets of Collin County, and you said, hey, listen, here's what we, murder is. It's the ending of, the, of an innocent person's life, either by my direct action or by my inaction that contributed to it or caused it. And people, you would say, is that wrong? Most, everyone but the criminally insane, okay? 99.9 out of 100 people are going to say Yes. But then if you follow up with this question, why is that wrong? Many people will just look at you and go, because it's just not right. It's not right. Like if we're going to have a healthy society, one where we can flourish and have fullness of life, then you just don't go around killing people. But I want you to know the Bible goes much deeper than that with regards to why God would issue the sixth commandment. Why is this commandment here? This is the second point. So first, murder is the taking of an innocent life. Secondly, the reason that God prohibits this is because all life, all life is precious and priceless. All life. Like, listen, it's possible we recognize this reality in the way that we operate, right? It's possible for something to be far more valuable than the price that one individual or one group of people may assign to it. 
Okay? I read an article a while back about a report in 2013 on NBC News about a New York family that picked up a bowl at a garage sale for three bucks. Some of you, after you hear this story, you're going to be going to every garage sale you could possibly find, right? Three dollars for this bowl. The bowl appeared much like any other bowl that you might find at any garage sale. It was a white ceramic bowl about five inches in diameter. kind of had a sawtooth pattern etched around the outside. But when, and when they made the buy on the block, they had no idea where this bowl had come from, or what it was worth. But the bowl was actually from the Northern Song Dynasty, which ruled China from 960 to 1127 A.D., and was known for its cultural and artistic advances. The only other bowl of similar size and design had been in the collection of the British Museum for more than 60 years. And when this 1,000-year-old bowl was discovered and eventually appraised at Sotheby's Auction House in New York City. It appraised for $2.2 million. $2.2 million. And it was promptly sold to a London <laughs> antiquities dealer at Sotheby's in New York in March of 2013. You see, what might in fact be worth millions could be sold at a garage sale for $3. Three bucks. And listen, what is in fact priceless may be regarded as disposable by some. What is in fact infinitely valuable. God doesn't put a price on human life. He doesn't say, if you take a human life, right, just the payment's 100, 100 donkeys, okay? Then human life has a price. He doesn't say that. He says, it's life for life in Genesis 9. Because human life is infinitely valuable. It's priceless. It's to be protected and cherished. It's precious beyond all measure. It is not disposable. And it's possible for us to make a, a, a false assessment of the value of human life. But it's all precious for a reason. Because all human life is created in the image of God. All human life. In fact, in Genesis 1, 26-27, whenever God takes the dust of the earth and the rib of the man and He brings our first parents into existence, He re reads like this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God says human life is valuable because they reflect me and my image bearers in a way that the rest of creation cannot do. In a way that, 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 that breathtaking sunrises and sunsets, although the heavens do declare the glory of God, as David writes in Psalm 19, they do not reflect the glory of God as a baby or an elderly individual does. They do not. And although the, the life at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, whatever can live down there, and whatever lives at the top of Mount Everest, right, might reflect the creativity of God and His glory, it does not do so as a human life reflects the glory of God as one created in His image to have dominion upon all the earth. Because humanity, human life, has the capacities and characteristics to reflect God unlike anything else in all creation. In all creation. 
As one author and pastor Kevin DeYoung said, he said, no matter people's race or ethnicity, how they vote, their health or disabilities, their age or infirmities, or whether they are bothersome to others. Yes, whether they are bothersome to others. Every person has inherent worth and dignity since each one is created to represent God. And whenever you disregard the image of God in all human life, you're violating the sixth commandment. When you disregard the value of human life. Because what murder is in the taking of innocent human life, it's like the tearing to pieces one who was created to reflect God by their humanity. It's shredding them into pieces. I don't know. Go back in your memory banks here a little bit for those of you who are a little bit older. For those of you who are younger, you might be right there with me, okay? But I don't know if you remember back in the day, maybe whenever you had a boyfriend or girlfriend, okay? Things were going so well. You were like, I'm only 13, but we're getting married, right? I'm writing, right, ladies, you're like writing your name and his last name and your little scribble notebooks and all these little hearts and doodles and drawings that you're making because you're going to get married. And then the next week, what happens? Boom, he drops the hammer and he breaks up with you. Or boom, she drops the hammer and she breaks up with you. But you've got all these pictures around now. Right? Pictures that you took at the movies, pictures that you took at the family reunion. Which, by the way, if you're 13 and have a boyfriend or girlfriend, don't bring them to the family reunion. That is not a good idea. Right? That's free this morning. Okay? But listen, you got all these pictures. All these pictures. So what do you do with these pictures now? Pictures in the yearbook of you and this person walking down the hall together. Like, what do you do? Out of your anger, out of your resentment, out of your rage, you might rip the picture in half. Rip their face in two. Right? Or you might take the pictures with all your other friends. It's such a good picture. So what do you do? You cut them out of the picture. You pasted all that together like they weren't even in there. Before the days of Photoshop, by the way. At least it was when I grew up. <laughs> and that's what, that's what murder is. It's taking the image, the representation, the reflection of God. that He is the picture of God that He has placed in the world. And it is tearing it top to bottom. It's ripping it to shreds. That's why God takes this so seriously. And when you discard the image of God in human beings, you're left with an animal. If you remove the picture of God from humanity, you're left with plant life. You're left with animal life. And no basis for human dignity. No basis for the mutual respect which is talked about so highly within our culture. Right? You have no foundational, principial, philosophical basis for mutual respect one to the other if you remove the image of God. Because in the animal kingdom, listen, it is dog eat dog. Dog eat dog. Bear eat bear. Tiger eat tiger. The, weak, the, the strong consume the weak. The weak are not cared for in the animal kingdom, but they are put out of their misery. And so when you remove the image of God from the equation, you're left with nothing more than animal and plant life. And yet because all life, all human life is created in the image of God, God says all of it is precious and to be protected. 
me give you a few categories of that. First, the scope. So we, we talk about the scope of this command. First, it includes the unborn. It includes the unborn. See, biological life scientifically begins at conception. It begins at conception. The Bible holds forth that personhood as well begins at conception. The text we read earlier in the, in the service to begin in our call to worship from Psalm 139 says in verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. See, it's a conception. It's a conception where life begins and where young... When a child is conceived is whenever they are stamped with the indelible image of God. It doesn't come some point later in the process. As a result, from the time they are conceived, their life is worth protecting. It's because it's precious and priceless. The Bible recognizes this over and over again. For instance, in Exodus chapter 21, in verse 22, it says, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that children, her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judge determines. So if they're tussling with each other they run into a pregnant woman and her children come out. That's a fine way of saying that she gives birth. Right? Causes her to go into labor. Right? And her children come out and they're fine. They're good. Right? They're healthy. Then a fine shall be imposed upon him as the husband deems to be satisfactory and fit. Verse 23, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That's what God says. Right? And so some of us are like, well, didn't Gandhi say an eye for an eye and the whole world would go blind? Yeah, that's what Gandhi said. But listen, listen, the eye, eye for an eye is actually a merciful, a merciful response because what an eye for an eye does is it keeps it from being an eye for an ingrown toenail right so the the punishment fits the offense doesn't exceed it it says if you cause harm to a life in the womb the bible shows it holds up the value of life there in the womb in fact one ancient christian document on the heels of the apostles, the Didache, which was like a, 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 a catechism for the early church, says, do not murder a child. Listen to the language it uses. Do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant, which were both common practices in the ancient world. Infanticide, if it wasn't this, the gender that you wanted, you threw it out on the heap to be discarded. And Christians were rescuing those babies left and right. Or if it was an unwanted pregnancy, you terminated it before you brought to term. John Calvin would go on to say it this way in the Middle Ages in the Reformation. He said, For the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being, and it is almost a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. See, throughout the ages, the Bible and Christian thinkers have held to this reality that the unborn are precious and priceless and are to be protected. 
but also the needy. The needy. See, as Christians, there is a call in our life to care about life outside the womb just as much as life in it. As evangelical Christians, to care about life outside the womb just as much as we care about life in it. Listen to what Martin Luther said about the sixth commandment in his large catechism. I'm going to read it to you. He says, This commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good to his neighbor, or though he has the opportunity, fails to prevent protect and save him from suffering bodily harm or injury. He says, if you send a person away naked when you could clothe him, you have let him freeze to death. If you see anyone suffer hunger and do not feed him, you have let him starve. Likewise, if you see anyone condemned to death and, 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 or in similar peril and do not save him, although you know ways and have the means to do so, you have killed him. It will do you no good to plead that you did not contribute to his death by word or deed, for you have withheld your love from him and robbed him of the service by which his life might have been saved. Therefore, God rightly calls all persons murderers who do not offer counsel and aid to men in need and in peril of body and life. He will pass the most terrible sentence upon them in the day of judgment as Christ himself declares, I was hungry and thirsty and you gave me no food or drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. But everyone should see how monks, those who drew away for their own personal spirituality in the hallowed halls of monasteries and didn't engage at all with the world around them, the monks, he said they mock and mislead the world with a false hypocritical show of holiness. While they have thrown this and other commandments to the winds, regarding them as unnecessary, as if they were not commandments, but mere counsels. Moreover, they have shamelessly boasted and bragged of their hypocritical calling and works as the most perfect life, so that they might live a nice, soft life without the cross and without suffering. And Michael Horton A modern scholar said this about Luther's catechism. He said, I fear that we modern Christians come perilously close to deserving Luther's criticism. We've abandoned the world in our pursuits of holiness, a style of holiness about which God could care less. Fleeing to our evangelical subculture with its own music, symbols, bumper stickers, activities, and even Christian cruises, we are able to avoid at least some of the suffering and need of our unbelieving neighbors. Our holiness is individualistic and selfish like the monks of Luther's day with great attention given to the commandments of men, dancing, drinking, smoking, and movie-going. But God's holiness concerns relationships. In other words, my abstinence from secular entertainment may help me, but what does it accomplish for my neighbor? See, do we care about the lives of the disabled, the poor, the orphaned, the widowed who are among us? in our culture, the hungry, the needy, the oppressed. See, we're rightly grieved by the 638,169 abortions that were reported to the CDC in 2015. We are rightly grieved by that. But are we also grieved by the statistics on gun violence, poverty in our urban cores, and our rural areas? Do we care as much about life outside the womb as we do life inside of it. As evangelical Christians. When one in five children in the wealthiest nation on the planet resides below the poverty line. 
in our nation. Or we're concerned about the plight of the mentally and physically disabled. Do we see their value as one created in the image of God? So the unborn, the needy, we got to move. The elderly. The elderly. Thank you. That's right. See, assisted suicide laws and euthanasia are an issue within many developing Western nations, including our own. And they have consequences that most people don't think about on the front end of them. Consider this with me. The Netherlands was the first nation to allow legal assisted suicide. And over time, they've seen what was voluntary become involuntary. How, you ask? Here's how. When it becomes an option for you to end your life, the insurance companies say, well, we're not going to pay for this treatment to extend your life another six months. Or a year or two. You can just take these pills and be done with it all right now. So you become a burden to your insurance providers, to the state, and to your family. And so what once started as voluntary now has become involuntary. As in Holland and in the Netherlands, the, mo- the more and more requests for assisted suicides are coming from family members, not from the patients themselves. Because they believe that family members are becoming a burden upon them. In fact, one author said that during Nazi, the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands, Dutch physicians refused to obey orders by Nazi troops to let the elderly and the terminally ill die. And in 2001, Holland became the first country to give legal status to doctor-assisted suicide. And as one author noted, it took only one generation to transform a war crime into an act of compassion. Do we see the inherent value in those who can no longer care for themselves? Those who once changed our diapers and wiped our backsides. And now are we too put out to do the same for them? But also the terminally ill. The terminally ill. Now, I want to be very clear. There's a difference. There's a difference between the termination of treatment and the termination of life. There's a difference between those two things. It's one thing for someone to say, listen, I know I've been given this diagnosis and I want to spend my last weeks, months, years, whatever I have left, enjoying my life with my family, not in and out of hospitals and treatments and hospice and all those kinds of things that are associated with with all the treatments I've got to go through in order to fight whatever diagnosis I've been given. It's one thing for them to terminate treatment or to refuse treatment. It's another thing to terminate life with a concoction or cocktail of pills that a doctor would prescribe that you would take and go to sleep and not wake up. There's a difference between those two things. Do we value life enough? Do we value life enough, the image of God in all life, to respect a patient's decision to terminate treatment, but to appeal to them to the end, not to terminate their life? How can we speak out of one side of our mouth with the rate and prevalency of teen suicide as it rises and fight against that while we also turn a blind eye to the suicides among the elderly and terminally ill that are being encouraged with a cocktail of pills? That is hypocrisy at best. See, this is the scope... This is heavy, I know, but this is the scope of this command. 
These things fall under the jurisdiction of the sixth commandment. But I want you to know that Jesus deepens and transforms this commandment for us as well. Because you know what Jesus does? Jesus says, listen, every fruit in your life has a root. Okay? Every single one of them. Listen, I was, I was out uh, a couple of weeks ago trying to get my yard spruced up for the spring. Anybody else ever been there? Right? It's a sign, sure sign of the fact that we're living in a fallen world because weeds just keep coming up no matter how much stuff you spread and how many of them you pluck, right? Uh, but I've got a live oak tree that was planted in my front yard by the builders whenever they built the home. And every fall, it begins to drop acorns. And those acorns fall down into the soil. They're, they're about this big, okay? They fall down into the soil, and as I cut grass and step on them, they're going to get pushed down in the soil. Well, this spring, I begin to notice some little stalks beginning to come up, little trees beginning to come up all around the little live oak tree in my front yard. Now, I don't want a grove of oak trees in my front yard, because if you see my front yard, it's about as big as this stage right here. I want a grove of trees there. And so I began to go plucking up those stems. And as I plucked it up, the whole acorn, the acorn was still there. It kind of came up in one of them. So I had the stem, a little bit of leaves, and then the acorn dangling underneath. Right? Because inside that acorn is a full bore live oak tree. Everything that is needed for a live oak tree to come into maturity is inside that little acorn. It's inside that little seed. And Jesus says every deed has a seed. Every fruit in your life has a root. And Jesus says that unrighteous anger is the seed of murder. That everything that you need to commit the act of murder is in the seed of unrighteous and unchecked anger. Where does he say that? Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to hear what he says in Matthew chapter 5. As he begins to go through the you have heard that it was said, but I tell you statements in the Sermon on the Mount. In beginning in, in verse 21 of Matthew 5, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and are there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus says the the root of murder is unchecked, unrighteous, unbridled anger that runs rampant in your life. And everything needed to commit murder is in the seed, is in the acorn of that anger. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whenever he says insults, that word in the text is literally the word raka, which means empty or nothing. In other words, in our anger, we tend to see people as empty, nothing, worthless. So we have an attitude of disdain, of condescension, of belittling them, of not recognizing their value. 
Listen, a couple of years ago, I had a friend of mine who was trying to encourage one of his children to get connected and involved in a student ministry at the church they were participating in. And the more he leaned in, the, the more that child resisted and pushed back. And so eventually, he, he, he came to a point of trying to encourage his child to get connected. Go be a part of what they're doing. Go get involved. Go get plugged in. And his child kept responding, well, I don't have any friends there. And so he kept saying, well, invite your friends to come. And I can remember, I remember him recounting to me this story. And he said, the way that his child responded to him encouraging his child to invite their friends to come was invite them to go be with those people? And that place? Listen, I want to tell you that, that, in that little seed is everything that you need to commit murder. Because it does not recognize the inherent value and dignity of human life. No matter how awkward people might be, no matter how disabled they might be, no matter how bothersome they might be, no matter what that neighbor might do with the music loud at 3 a.m. Some of you are like, I don't have to worry about it anymore because I live on 37 acres out in the country. All right. But listen, when you see people as empty, when you see people as nothing, when you see people as worthless, when you measure people up on account of what you believe they can contribute to your life to make it fulfilling and meaningful. That is a part of the seed that Jesus says of disdain, of condescension, looking down on them, belittling their worth and their value. So listen, some of you, when I started this sermon, you were like, Pastor, I'm sure glad you're preaching on murder this morning because I was struggling with that last week. And yet Jesus says, you're liable. You're liable if you look upon people and measure them on the basis of what they can contribute to your life. And you're liable if out of unchecked anger, unbridled anger, unresolved anger, you continue to fester in bitterness and hatred and resentment, pushing away from people rather than pulling in for reconciliation and healing in the relationship. That's why Jesus says, listen, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you recognize that there's something between you and your brother, you go to them first before you come and raise your hands and you sing hallelujah to God. You go and make it right. You go and seek to be reconciled. And we all have an anger problem, don't we? Had one author uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in his book, he, the, the, title of, the title of the chapter was, Do I Have an Anger Problem? And, the, and the, the, the chapter was one word long. Yes. Because we all do. We've all been simmering and seething in our anger. We've all had a cup of wrath that we wanted somebody else to drink. 
And listen, I'm here to tell you this morning, church, that the only thing you can do with that unresolved, unrighteous, unbridled, unchecked anger, that cup of wrath, is to bring it to the one who drank your cup for you. See, Jesus didn't have a cup to drink. He drank mine. He drank yours. He drank God's cup of wrath on His anger against sin that I had filled up and that you had filled up. So this morning, if there is unresolved anger in your life, I want to encourage you, bring it to the one who drank the cup in your place. And see if He might heal whatever hurts that have produced that anger. That He might fill whatever dissatisfactions have given rise to that anger. The sixth commandment says, you shall not murder. And Jesus goes, listen, let's get beneath the surface. What's the acorn? Because you've got to deal with that. Not just checking the box of I, don't, I haven't done anything that's deemed prison worthy. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you today for your word. That these ancient commands that you gave to your people so many years ago. Father, they speak truth and life. They give us clarity and a pathway in which to walk. And Father, I pray this morning, I, I, it does, it's, it's, I'm not so naive as to think that there may not be someone in this room this morning who has contributed to or carried out a termination of a pregnancy. Or someone who's listening to this message. And Father, I pray this morning that you would let them know that while their actions from their past were sin, they are not unpardonable. They are not beyond the reach of your grace. That at the cross that Jesus drank, he drank the cup of your wrath against that sin for them. So Father, I pray that they wouldn't, while they would grieve over past sin, in the present they would live in light of the victory and the freedom of Christ. They would know His forgiveness. They would know His cleansing. They would know the power of the Holy Spirit to make them new. Would you minister to them now? And Father, for those of us in the room who have the seed of murder in our hearts with unchecked, unbridled anger and rage, or just a disdain for those who are not like us, Father, I pray that today as we respond to Your Word, that we would respond with repentance and we would find the empowerment of Your Holy Spirit. 
put our anger aside and to show love to our neighbor, to value their life just as much as ours. And that we would value it rightly, we would assess it well, and then we would treat them as such. So that everyone who comes into contact with us, whether it be for a moment or for a lifetime, they might know that we cherish the life that they have just as much as we cherish the one that we have. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.